The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Today we're heading back to the town of Mapleton, Massachusetts. I think. Or is it Louisiana? The Southern Engineering Company has begun a project to drain the local swamp, but the locals are convinced that the area is haunted by the evil mummy Karas and his bride Ananka, who sank into its murky depths 25 years prior. Following the arrival of two representatives of the Scripps Museum hoping to locate the missing mummies, a workman is soon found murdered. Meanwhile, a woman suffering from amnesia is found wandering around the swamp, experiencing memories of Egypt, and it's not long before more bodies begin to pile up around her. And what of the high priests of Arkham? Surely they have a plan to return their ancient dead to their proper resting place? The mummy's on the loose and he's dancing with the devil. Join us as we discuss the epic conclusion to the Kara saga in The Mummy's Curse. To a new world of gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He could his face. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spook characters and films in the Universal Studios Classic Monster series. Today we're talking about 1944's The Mummy's Curse. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and joining me as always is my co-host, Cajun Mike, excuse me, Monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? Hey, you. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm crawling my way out of the murky depths to be here today. So, Mike, I'm not sure if you noticed, but this is our fourth film from 1944, and it's our second mummy film from the same year. Wow, jam-packed. Yeah, we've seen these monster movies pile up before. There were three released in 1940, three in 1942, and again in 1943. But now we're in our most productive year yet. And with the monster's decline in popularity at the time, I'm afraid it'll never get this good again. But here we are at the end of the Kara saga, at least until he's resurrected again for Abbott and Costello. And while much of this is either recycled material from previous mummy installments or just straight up nonsense, The Mummy's Curse does bring some fun new stuff to the table. And I think that's why I ultimately come out of it enjoying it. What do you think of this one? This one was quite a surprise. This is definitely the first time that I've seen this one. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I'm not sure exactly where I come down on it yet. It's, it's going to be a fun conversation, but I'll say this much. I was surprised, okay? And anytime they're still surprising me at some level, I'm happy. I'm not disappointed, to be honest, even though I'm aware it's got a lot of shortcomings, the worst shortcomings, but also a lot of really fun cool stuff. I know it's a mummy movie, so I know we're kind of going to get the same thing over and over again. And I, I thought they did a nice job with the montage of using stock footage from previous mummy films to fill in all of that backstory and sort of streamline things. I like how we're still in continuity. 
I like that there's a character named Michael who's a crypt keeper. Unfortunately, he gets killed. He gets throttled. It surprised me in the way that I thought there'd be nothing to talk about. I thought there'd be nothing fresh or nothing old to keep talking about again. But I feel like this movie delivers enough for me to make me happy. There's one major thing in particular, and it didn't come across the way I had hoped, but we get Mrs. Mummy. Finally, we get uh-huh. Mrs. Yep. Mummy, and, and that's all I really ever wanted from one of these sequels, so I was content. That's the thing about these mummy movies, right? Unlike every other character that is in this Universal Monsters stable, the mummy movies specifically seem to shamelessly recycle the same formula over and over and over again in ways that the others don't. They'll add a couple new things here and there just so it's not exactly the same as the one you've seen previously. But like, I find myself at the end of this journey looking back and saying, okay, I know what to expect from a mummy movie. It's going to have basically the same exact plot but which one do i feel like watching today is it the one that's set in like a louisiana bayou is it the one that's kind of like almost an abbott and costello comedy that was the mummy's hand right so like if you were to binge watch these over the course of an afternoon i think it would be really tedious and and really exhausting and maybe not so much fun however when you space them out and watch them over a period of time you know you start to get comfortable with the mummy movies there are other franchises that are similar die hard makes a blatant joke about how the same thing can happen to the same guy like multiple times, right? So I don't necessarily view it as a bad thing, but I do think that unlike the Dracula movies or the Frankenstein movies, unlike those series or franchises, the mummy doesn't hold up under that kind of watching, right? But I find myself enjoying the mummy films a lot more than I thought I would in hindsight. You know, I thought, okay, it's just the same thing over and over. By the time we get to the end of these, we're going to fucking hate the mummy. But I found the opposite to be true, which is really interesting to me. Yeah, it'll be fun to see what happens when we get to the creature from the Black Lagoon after all of this and having that guy show up and see what kind of void he's going to fill for us. But even though they keep retreading this mummy movie and it's the same thing over and over with different characters, I I don't know. Like, I buy it. Like, I like it because I like the lore. I wish they'd do something new with it. But, you know, they've been trying. They've been relocating the mummy from here and there. They brought him to America. They brought him to the future, apparently, 25 years in the future in this movie. And I give him a lot of credit for at least trying to keep this going as long as it has. Like, I really like the mummy design. I like him as a creature. We talked extensively about that sort of creeping death that he represents. And, you know, quite frankly, the only other series that comes to mind in the Universal lot that we've been discussing that does what I think the mummy was trying to do with the series is something like The Invisible Man, where that played a lot with genre. It dropped that gimmick that conceit into all these different types of movies that a noir movie, a spy movie, a female comedy, what have you. So I think it still has merit. Yeah, I wish they were better, but at least they're, the last few have only been like an hour. You could bang them out two at a time if you had to. <laughs> right, exactly right. Like you said, the Invisible Man movies will play around with genre. The Mummy movies kind of differentiate themselves by location, kind of, almost. And it doesn't always make sense, right? Like, I, I understand that the formula here is very similar to the one that came before it, but they had already done it two more times before that. So if they're going to keep the same formula, you got to change the location. So there's a certain amount of like suspension of disbelief that you have to do in order to enjoy this one to its full capacity. Because I do think that if you can accept that the story is now set in Louisiana, which they never explicitly say, right? We just kind of get hints. If you can accept that it's set in a completely different area, then you can kind of
kind of enjoy all the original stuff that is going on here. I love that we have a female mummy. Like there, there's a part of me that wishes that she was just a full mummy for the whole movie instead of yes. kind of going through the rebirth and kind of she cleans up, right? She's very reminiscent of the women we've seen in previous mummy movies who've been plagued by memories and been on their way to becoming Ananka. But now we've got Ananka fully formed and I'm curious to know why she didn't stay a mummy. Then we can have two mummies. But I do love where this movie does change. I love that we do have technically a second mummy in the way that they play with that. I do love how this one sort of twists the ending, the climax of the movie a little bit. I love the performances here. The only thing that's maybe a little bit disappointing in that regard is Lon Chaney really seems to be kind of phoning it in here. I mean, they don't really give him much to do as Karis to begin with, but here he's just kind of like going through the motions. His costume looks maybe the worst that it ever does up to this point. There was a moment where you could clearly tell that it's like a rubber mask on his face as opposed to being actual, like, you know, applied bandages. To call it one of my favorite mummy movies is not to say that it is a necessarily great movie, but I do, again, I do think that there's a lot of stuff in here for people who like these old mummy movies to get a lot out of it yeah yeah i'm not gonna say like this is the best one by far you know no it's not it's it's not up there at all okay but like it's passable and it's not at this point i'm being more judgmental on things you know i'm still can't get over son of dracula for some reason (laughs) but you do see and feel the budget and the production is just lackluster in that sense but i do think there is some really nice direction I enjoy most of, if not all of, the performance in the cast here. I do agree that you could pretty much make a better Karis Halloween costume this season. (laughs) I also agree, like, we had such a great female mummy design. It would be nice to keep for the entire film, but they also have to remember Ananka was always like in human form sort of a drifting soul so i think like they right. want to get back to that as fast as possible so we you know we get sort of like the best of both worlds with that there's a lot of compromise going on here necessary and artistically and all that and and still come out the other end of this pretty satisfied customer yeah i agree so let's get into the production here i found Quite a bit more than I thought I would, honestly, after four Karis movies. So, okay, before The Mummy's Ghost was even released, now we're talking like spring of 1944, Universal announced a fourth Mummy sequel. At the time, it was officially titled The Mummy's Return. Now, that film was intended to support House of Frankenstein, which at that time was still The Devil's Brood, and it was going to be like a double bill. No fewer than four writers contributed to the script for The Mummy's Curse including a man named Leon Abrams, who put together a 23-page treatment. However, few of Abrams' ideas actually made it into what ultimately ended up as being Bernard L. Schubert's shooting script. In Abrams' treatment, Karis wasted no time, coming right out of the gate with a killing spree. This was eventually revealed to be a series of flashbacks, with local authorities believing Karis had disappeared forever in the swamp. And when a crew of Italian workers discovered Karis while dredging the swamp, they mistook him for a dummy, which was then passed off to a farmer who set him up in a field as a scarecrow. Oh boy. Then, the proprietor of a traveling carnival spies Karis in the field, and then buys him from the farmer for five bucks to be used as a sideshow exhibit. That's very elaborate. Yes. This movie could have been wildly different. Considering the fact that these movies have all kind of felt very, very similar, I would have loved to have seen this one come to life, even if it was horribly bad. The mummy joins the circus. Yes. 
So now at this point, this is where the hero, a newspaper reporter, and a character named Abdullah Bey, the latest high priest, they come into play. And the film more or less at that point follows the same basic plot of the previous mummy films. The Princess Ananka is recovered from the riverbed. Abdullah Bey uses the Tana fluid to bring Karas back to life, as well as restore Ananka to her young, beautiful self. There's a killing spree, of course. Bey falls in love with Ananka and is subsequently killed by Karas. And finally, Karas and Ananka are carried off by a tornado that strikes the museum what wait what yes (laughs) <laughs> so in the climactic scene, which presumably would have been like the Scripps Museum, a tornado just sort of destroys the building and carries them away. Wow. So the mummy goes to Oz. Yeah. <laughs> it's their problem now. So that's what the movie could have been. But like I said, most of those ideas were, of course, excised from the final script. Yeah. Most of them, they basically said, you know what, let's just remake The Mummy again. Mm-hmm. Like, why do anything that insane? I feel like the budget would have skyrocketed as well. So it could have also been a cost-saving measure in addition to just realizing that these ideas are ridiculous and would not make for a good movie. No, no. Well, this is Bernard L. Schubert's first Universal Monster script, he did have a few horror credits by this time, including Todd Browning's 1935 film Mark of the Vampire, starring Lionel Barrymore and Bela Lugosi. Now, about a week before The Mummy's Curse, went into production, producer Ben Pavar hired Leslie Goodwins to direct. Goodwins got his start in the 1930s as a gag writer for two real comedies before transitioning to the director's chair. He spent much of his career at RKO, where he was responsible for the Mexican Spitfire series of films starring Lupe Velez and Leon Errol. Production began on July 26th, 1944, and lasted only two weeks. Leslie Goodwins took full advantage of Universal's existing sets, including the Tower of London set, which was used for the lower level of the monastery where Karis is brought back to life. For the exteriors, he used sets from Gung Ho and Phantom of the Opera. And the steps from James Whale's Green Hell were used for Karis' ascent to the monastery. And of course, other location shots were used as well. We'll talk about it when we get into the movie, but I'm pretty sure that they used sets from the Wolfman and from the Invisible Man's Revenge, although I couldn't find anything official to substantiate that. And there's also maybe my favorite use of stock footage for a flashback that we've seen yet. So bravo for trying to streamline the entire series up until now. (laughs) Yes. Now, by August 8th, production had wrapped, leaving only the rebirth of Ananka to be shot. Apparently due to the extreme heat and safety concerns, plans for more complicated camera effects were scrapped, and it was decided that they would shoot the sequence in a more straightforward way. We've got Lon Chaney Jr. returning as Karis. He receives top billing here, of course, and I learned that he earned a cool $8,000 for his performance here. Hmm. I mean, this is a walk in the park. Like, he's yes. literally walking through a park this entire movie and not really doing too much. Yeah. You know, he's earned it by now, I'm sure, and, and everything. But yeah, it's just like kind of name recognition at this point, right? Like, take our word for it. Lon Chaney's under there. It's funny that you say that, Mike, because in my research, I discovered that there's a theory that Chaney never actually played Karis in this or any previous Mummy film, and that his name was only used to sell tickets. Get out of town. I don't believe that because being a fairly fresh watcher of most of these and having only seen a few of them and watching them so closely, I feel like at least the first time he played the mummy, it was him because there's some Wolfman body language being shared between the two monsters. I I feel like there's a rigidness and sort of way of walk and 
his gait that that's an interesting one. Have to go back and check the tapes. So this theory was first hatched by a young Joe Dante. Oh, no way. In a 1962 issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and then was later seconded by a man named William K. Everson in his book, More Classics of the Horror Film. However, Reginald LeBorg, Elise Knox, Peter Coe, Martin Kozlek, and Virginia Christine all testified that Cheney did indeed don the wrappings. So you could go either way. I, I trust Joe Dante implicitly most right. of the time, but in this case, I want to like agree with you and, and Reginald LeBorg and everybody else that it is Lon Chaney. There are too many stories of him complaining about the makeup and the heat and everything for that to be fiction. Yeah, yeah. That too, like, you got to concoct all those behind the scenes, secondhand things and, you know, all of his pranking and keeping, like, the vodka bottle and his mummy suit. You got to corroborate all that stuff, so. So we've got Dennis Moore as Dr. James Halsey. Following a plane crash, which ended his career in aviation, Moore spent over a year in the hospital and two years recovering before transitioning into a career as an actor. Like many of the universal monster stars of the era, he was predominantly a Western actor. While never really a leading man, he appeared as both heroes and villains in many Western films, serials, and TV shows from 1935 until 1961. Before The Mummy's Curse, he did appear in Monogram Pictures' 1941 farce, Spooks Run Wild, where he played a professor who commits a series of, quote, vampire killings, for which a stage magician played by Bela Lugosi was blamed. So he does have some horror credits, not many, mostly a Western actor. For this performance, he received $1,000. Not my favorite in the movie. Not my favorite leading man that we've had so far, but interesting background. Peter Coe returning as Dr. Ilzor Zandab. We saw him in House of Frankenstein. Oh, okay, yeah. In our previous episode, yeah. So here he is now playing the next high priest of Arkham. He's the second most paid actor in this movie. He got $3,500 for this performance. Yeah, he earned it. I really like his performance in this as the high priest. I love the way he just kind of stares off into space when he reads his lines. It's very kind of like unnerving. Yeah, I like his character too, the whole like undercover kind of deal that he's doing yeah i remember not really caring for his performance in house of frankenstein he seemed kind of bland but here i really enjoy him kind of relishing in the much more you know fun dialogue supposedly there was a day during production where he was approached during a lunch break and he was informed that there would be an extra scene to be shot within that hour and it was like a 13 page soliloquy which he somehow managed to perform all in one take and received a standing ovation by the cast and crew oh good for him so that's pretty cool very nice virginia christine is here making her horror debut, replacing Ramsey Ames as Princess Ananka. An actress of stage, screen, radio, and television, Virginia is perhaps most well-known as Mrs. Olsen, the Folgers coffee woman, thanks to her string of Folgers commercials from the 1960s and 70s. Wow. Do you remember those commercials? I don't know if I saw her in, in those, those commercials, but I remember Folgers in your cup. She reminded me like half Betty Page, half Patricia Arquette. I can see that. Depending on the angle. She definitely had those bangs and, and the hair like Betty Page, but then I felt like a lot of her demeanor reminded me of Patricia Arquette. I'll have to share some links. If you go on YouTube, you can see a bunch of her old Folgers commercials and uh, maybe put some of those in the show notes, but you should check them out because they're really fun. Her list of credits outside of that is very long, but some highlights from her film career include High Noon, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Judgment at Nuremberg, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, so she's been in a lot of great movies. Is what yes. You're <laughs> she's done a lot of stuff stuff but she has been in some like really amazing films despite being third billed in this film she received the lowest salary of the cast she'd only got 
$541.67 for this performance. Oh man, and 67 cents. I don't know why the figure is so specific. That's what I found. But like considering the amount of time she spent in makeup, I feel like she really got shafted here. Yeah. I mean, I keep have to remind myself, like it is only two weeks of work. Like that's still a lot of money for two weeks of work. But then again, considering what her character has to go through, which she has to do, if that, that is indeed her in the swamp, then she deserved more. Even Napoleon Simpson, who played Gooby, and Charles Stevens, who played Achilles, the comic relief of the movie, they made more. Although she did receive an extra $250 for the time between the film wrapped and eventually shooting the resurrection sequence. So you can bump her up to, what is that, like almost $800? But still, I feel like almost $800, all things considered, still very, very low. Yeah. So I actually have a story, like I have a quote from her. She talks about the experience of shooting that rebirth scene. It's a little bit lengthy, but bear with me. When she was recalling her experience shooting that scene, she said, quote, I had to be okayed by Jack Pierce in order to get the part. He elevated himself to the position of top monster maker in the business. He was an arrogant man, but we got along beautifully. He said my cheekbones were fine, so I got the part. We shot the film, and then came the last day of shooting when I changed from a mummy to a lovely Egyptian princess. All through the picture, Jack kept coming on set saying, I'm using something new on you, Virginia. It's going to be terrific. Don't worry, it won't hurt your skin. I was very young, and it won't hurt your skin began to ring in my ears. I was a basket case the night before shooting, so Fritzy, her husband, called Jack on the phone late that night and said, Jack, what are you going to put on Virginia's face? She's as nervous as a cat. Jack laughed and said, oh, it's nothing. It's a Denver mud pack. I was there at four or five in the morning and sat in the makeup chair for five and one half hours. He started with pieces of cotton dipped in witch hazel to fill in all the youthful lines. Then he lined it with an orange stick to make the wrinkles. That had to be dried. And then came the Denver mud pack and that had to be dried. He worked a little patch at a time. Unfortunately, we made a mistake in wardrobe because we left the arms bare, which meant that the arms had to be done too, and the hands. Every place the skin was exposed. It was a tedious, long process. And of course, the natural thing happened. I had to go to the bathroom. The body makeup lady was Jack's wife. She took me in like a baby because if I spoiled the hands, we'd have to start all over again and they would crack. It was hardened now. I couldn't smile. I couldn't laugh. I couldn't talk. And I got the giggles in the john. It was so ridiculous. We got through that and I got hungry. I would have stolen for food. And so they spoiled the lips a bit and got me a malted milk. After the full session, they put me in a cart and took me out to the back lot. Very carefully, they dug a hole my height right in the dirt. For any big star, they would have sifted the sand and done it on stage and had it cleaned. They laid me down in the thing and covered me with burnt cork, which photographs like dirt. They turned the hose on so the dried cork got wet and looked like earth around it. I laid there with this much of me exposed and thought, oh God, how many creepy crawly things are in this with me? And just before they shot, they covered my face. So I emerged. And you have to do a little acting along with this. And how do you act like a mummy? They had built steps in this murky, ugly, swampy, greenish lake. I'm supposed to take two or three steps. I took one look and said, I can't do it. I simply can't do it. And then you psych yourself up and say, you want it to be an actress? Do it. This time tomorrow, it'll be over. End quote. Wow. Bravo. That's amazing. Isn't that great? It looks fantastic. Like this is the scene in the movie. We'll talk way more about it later on. But like that cork does look like mud and dirt and every it felt like she was crawling out of the ground like a zombie. And Dan, like I'm I just have to say it now. I finally got the shot and we got the shot of an orb coming up from the ground like that iconic shot finally in a universal monster movie and it belongs to princess ananka like yeah i was so over the moon about all of it and and you know talk about her performance like she looks like an evil dead puppet 
you know yes. she looks like one of those demons kind of like trying to walk around um it's all just so cool yeah she looks like ted Raimi as the old woman coming out of the basement evil dead 2 pretty much and then does that weird kind of ballerina walk i don't know how to explain it but it's crazy yeah incredible performance under all the makeup still keeping it very physical performance I th- yeah i think she does a great job and i don't know that this one particular sequence is better than anything in the original 1932 mummy i think that one's pretty much perfect but this is definitely maybe the best sequence in any of the chorus films yeah yeah and as much as it would have been amazing to keep her like that the entire film like i understand you don't want to have to go through all of that all over again and like you know they had lon cheney's down to a science i'm sure he just slipped in and out of it and yeah for what we got i'm very pleased Yeah. So we've got Addison Richards as Pat Walsh. Richards was a prolific actor of film and television, appearing in more than 300 films between 1933 and his death in 1964, most of which were Westerns. This guy's a real hard ass. And like, I ended up hating his character, which means he's a good actor. Like, this was one of my favorite performances because you could feel him so into this role. (laughs) I quite enjoyed uh, his performance in this. Kay Harding played his niece, Betty Walsh. Now, having only made eight films in her career, seven of which were released in 1944, and most of her roles were uncredited, I really couldn't find much information on her, which is a shame because she's so much fun in this. I think that like, as one of the female leads in any of these Mummy movies, she's one of the ones I like the most. Yeah, I quite enjoyed her too, and I love her introduction scene, like, you know, when we're meeting all the characters, and I'm just, like very excited for her to be in the movie, you know, and, and she kind of teams up with Halsey for a while and then they kind of vanish from the movie but she makes it back by the end and everything so it's good that she was sort of more integrated in the climax. Yeah, I mean she's technically the romantic lead in this one. And the temptation. I wish that when they were making this movie they had sort of realized that before the last 10 minutes of the movie. Like if you're going to do it build that throughout the film don't just shoehorn it in at the end the way they did but as a character outside of the romantic element of the film i I think she's one of the more fun protagonists we have here in addition to the mummy's curse Kay appeared in weird woman with lon cheney and Evelyn Anchors, and the Sherlock Holmes thriller, The Scarlet Claw with Basil Rathbone. Both of those were released in 1944. She received $750 for her performance in The Mummy's Curse, which I think is fair considering she wasn't in the makeup. You know what I mean? We've got Martin Kozlek as Ragheb. He was the sidekick to our high priest in this film. Yeah, the underling, his sort of Igor. Kozlik was a classically trained German-born actor who fled to the United States when the Nazis came to power, and it was his hatred of Hitler and the Nazi party that led to a career of playing Nazis on film. He often played SS and concentration camp officers and actually played Joseph Goebbels five times. Whoa, okay. I could see that, actually. Yeah, he's got the face for it. No offense to him, but yeah. While many German actors resented playing these sorts of roles, Kozlik relished it, seeing it as an opportunity to get back at the Nazis. But as World War II came to an end, these roles started to dry up, and he transitioned into B-horror, appearing here in The Mummy's Curse and later in She-Wolf of London. And supposedly, he disliked Lon Chaney Jr. intensely. I did not get more elaboration on that. Presumably, there is a juicy story somewhere. I just couldn't find it. He wouldn't be the first person to not like 
Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, maybe he used it for his performance because in this he seems pissed off like the whole movie. The whole movie, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it really works for his character. So I'll, yes. I'll give him that. And he was paid $1,200 for his performance here. Kurt Katch plays Cajun Joe. Katch was a Polish actor whose career began in 1919, mostly foreign films. But his career in Hollywood really began in earnest in the 1940s. In addition to The Mummy's Curse, he also appeared in Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy in 1955. And for my fellow James Bond fans, he appeared in the first film James Bond story, an episode of the series Climax entitled Casino Royale starring American actor Barry Nelson as 007 and Peter Lorre as Le Chief. Wow, very interesting. Uh, yeah, Cajun Joe, you know, uh, I guarantee. Like, that's kind of <laughs> unfortunately what we're dealing with here. And like, you know, again, like we're dealing with the times and stuff, but like I was not really expecting this many bad stereotypes. Like, like Cajun Joe's not not that bad or anything. I was gonna say, like, let's you know, be honest, he's not the worst stereotype no, in this movie. like we have, yeah, we still have like, Gooby. Yeah. Not going to entirely take me out of it because, you know, they're trying to do sort of a travel log with this series. And, you know, it's like, this is why you go to Nolens, you know, this is, yeah. this is color down there, I suppose. And it's like, yeah, a lot of sort of the French broken English people inhabiting the local area and stuff like that. You know, it is what it is. But like this guy, he does do a very respectable job trying to flesh this guy out to be more than just a stereotype. So I'll give him that. And Cody as Tanta Berth, who I, I really love in this movie. Cody was a Belgian actress who made a name for herself as a vaudeville performer with her husband, Frank Orth. Unsurprisingly, she often appeared in big musicals like Can Can, Kiss Me Kate, and Interrupted Melody, and frequently played ethnic types, such as a French madame in Jezebel, and of course, Tanta Berth here in The Mummy's Curse. Yeah, shouldn't have been, but was a big surprise. Maybe it was a bigger surprise just because this opens with a musical number. Like, yes. Universal monster movies are no stranger to just like bursting into song, you know, whether it be at a carnival or a gypsy camp, what have you here. So, like, kind of caught me off guard, but loved it. Loved her character. Yes, same. Let's see. We've got Holmes Herbert as Dr. Cooper. Herbert was an English character actor who immigrated to the United States in 1912, where he appeared in a ton of films between 1915 and 1952, often as distinguished British gentlemen. We've seen him a few times already, once as the chief of police in The Invisible Man and as a magistrate in The Ghost of Frankenstein. We've got Napoleon Simpson. Mentioned him before. He plays Gooby here. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much information on him either, but from what I could tell by his filmography, his performance as Gooby is pretty much representative of the sort of career he had, which is kind of unfortunate for him. Charles Stevens, also mentioned before, plays Achilles here. He's one of the workers in the um, swamp. Stevens was an American actor from Arizona who appeared in almost 200 films between 1915 and 1961, mostly Westerns, and was a close friend of Douglas Fairbanks. He appeared in almost all of Douglas Fairbanks' films, which I thought was kind oh. of a cool factoid there. Nice. And lastly, we've got William Farnham as that watchman in the uh, monastery ruins. Did you say he did have a name? His name was Michael? Yeah, from what I caught, you know, because there was a Daniel in the last movie. Yep. 
and there's a Michael in this movie. And yeah, I perked up. Yeah, he's like the Crypt Keeper, basically. You know, he's looking after the monastery. <laughs> so I wasn't going to include him in this cast list because he's really just in there for like a scene and then gets killed. But the more I learned about him, the more I felt it necessary to bring him up here. And that's one of the best types of death. Like as soon as you're introduced, you get knocked off in the very same scene. Pretty epic. Oh man, if I was in one of these movies, that's what I would want. I would want to just come in, say a few lines and then just get killed immediately. Almost reminded me of that security guard the mummy threw yes. through a real plate glass window. <laughs> yep. Farnham was an American actor who made his acting debut in a stage production of Julius Caesar when he was just 10 years old. And in 1914, he began his film career and went on to become one of the most prolific actors of the silent era. And ultimately, he became one of the most popular actors in Hollywood. At the peak of his career, he was making $10,000 a week. Wow. And between 1914 and 1952, he appeared in nearly 150 films. This guy had a huge career. When I read that he was like one of the most popular actors in Hollywood, you know, I'd never heard of this guy. And if you look at his list of credits, there's a lot of stuff in there, stuff I've seen. But most at this time, there's a lot of stuff I haven't seen. And unfortunately, many of his silent films are lost forever. Mm, I wonder if this was some kind of cameo, you know, where <laughs> they just had a very small role and maybe he was like on the lot, or just did a movie around the corner or something. And and there's like, hey, you got a day? You want to make 300 bucks? So I've got just a few more extra like budgetary tidbits. I don't know why this episode is so heavy on film's <laughs> budget and, and where the money's going, but I found this information. I wanted to share it. Tom Tyler, the original Chorus, received a $60 check for the clips used in the film. I have no idea how much or even if Boris Karloff received any sort of payment for the very short clip they used from the original Mummy film. Yeah, I think they just used the one of his eyes. Just the eyes, yep. Now, there was a $100 salary allowance for a narrator, which was ultimately scrapped. Jack Pierce's mummy costume cost a whopping $100. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and Universal paid just $1 for Hey You, the song that Ann Cody sings in the opening sequence. And wow. that song, that song was actually written by her husband, Frank Orth. Huh, really? Yeah, I think that probably came from their vaudeville act, but I couldn't confirm that. That, that would be my suspicion that he wrote it for them. And it was bought by Universal for use in this film. They did buy another for a dollar that they didn't end up using at all. This one particular song only cost them a buck. Wow. Sounds like a ripoff. I mean, it does. Yeah. From Universal perspective, it's a bargain. Oh, yeah. Okay. So those are all the production notes that I have for The Mummy's Curse. So I think we can roll right into the film. Yeah, sure. Now, our Universal logo hasn't changed yet. God damn it. No. But right out of the gate, I got to say, I was surprised because it's over the swamp. Yes. I kind of half jokingly said at the end of the last mummy episode, you know, you got to put a, a sign up that says there's a dead mummy down there and everything. And they didn't do that. I couldn't believe this is going to be about clearing out that swamp. Right. Finally. Yeah. 25 years later. So this swamp, what's, I guess we're going to assume is the swamp here. I'm almost positive. This is the set from the Wolfman. This is like that forest with the fog. Oh, Okay. Rewatch that and see if you agree with me. But I'm almost positive that's what it is. And I wouldn't be surprised. It's universal. They're trying to save money. So I definitely think that that is the Wolfman sort of forest. Cool. After the credits, the film opens on Tanta Birth's Cafe, where we get this Hey You song number. And she kills it. I love this whole sequence. Now, I'm pretty sure that this set here is the same 
little tavern in the Invisible Man's Revenge for the dart scene. I'm almost positive it's the exact same bar. Interesting, interesting. I really like this opening because it gives this sense that like everybody's relaxed, there's nobody's worried, you know, maybe they've all forgotten about the mummy. Most of these have started on like a dark and stormy night and like we're in a carriage going over a hill and all that, you know, so this was kind of cool that it starts off so sort of like upbeat. It is, but like if you think about the fact that this came out months after the last movie, it seems strange. The Mummy's Ghost would have been fresh in everyone's mind. It's not like this was a sequel that came out several years later and people like sort of forgot, you know? So it's weird to like have this movie get released months later and be set so far in the future that people are now suddenly relaxed. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't find out to the end of this sequence that it's been 25 years. But we get introduced to Tanta Birth, we get introduced to Cajun Joe, and we get introduced to Achilles. Cajun Joe is kind of like hitting on Tanta Birth in front of her husband, which I think is kind of funny. But they're talking about work. We get the sense that they're working out in the swamp. They're starting to share stories about this mummy that is supposedly buried out there, which gets laughed off, which is kind of fun. Right. He's got a job clearing out the swamp, but someone says, you know, that swamp is haunted and everyone kind of like brushes him off but there's also talk about like this guy Antoine's gone missing everyone's like well maybe he's just like tying one on or something like that or sleeping one off but you know it's cool we're setting up a couple things here like even in the very first scene now let's think about something for a second because this is the scene where it gets mentioned but this is 25 years later right now Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the mummy's tomb the second film with steve banning and babe that movie was set like 30 years after the mummy's hand the mummy's hand was released in 1940 jump forward 30 years we're now in 1970 and then this movie jumps forward another 25 years so we are at least in the mid 1990s amazing to consider that this takes place in 1995 (laughs) i love it at least 1995 because we're not sure how much time passes in the mummy's ghost between those so we're talking at least mid 90s (laughs) that's mind-blowing it's absolutely insane and yet everyone's dressed like it's the 1940s like they predicted the future better in that one wolfman the first early wolfman the werewolf of london you know he had like a self-driving car and he had like video phone and he had like solar panel housing and like all this like crazy things in his gadgets and stuff and here they didn't even bother to attempt to predict anything about the future and they had like you know there's sci-fi films out at now you know there's like things to come was out that predicted the future you know the time machine wasn't made yet but the book might have been written by now so like do something like how cool would it have been if like the mummy came back and he became like part cyborg like, <laughs> talk about Terminator. Like, I'd love it. The thing about these mummy movies is that they've always been based on like ancient lore and not science fiction. True, Even though true. there's always a scientist that needs to like sort of explain what's happening, they never really explain it. The Egyptian mythology always takes precedent over science in these ones. So true. But from time to time, they do try and bring up at least like the lip service of you know science versus religion. Yes, uh, they obviously never delve deep into those kinds of things you're right but they also like how they keep trying to like kill the mummy with more modern technology you know first it's fire then it's like shotguns yeah like no like they keep sort of like upping that i'm not saying i want to see him get shot with like a laser uh necessarily (laughs) but 
Maybe. One thing they did predict, even if they didn't sort of predict technology that we would have today, they did sort of predict that we would have a mummy in the late 90s. Oh, Brendan Fraser. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Dan, that's the best connection tonight so far. I'm going to stick with that. I think that the best thing that this movie did was predict Stephen Summers' 1999 blockbuster film, The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. With that, let's move on. And we meet Pat Walsh, who is having like a meeting with his men. His entire crew are getting superstitious. They're convinced that there is something haunting that swamp they're out there working in. I don't know really what spurs these stories, right? I think maybe it's just one character did go missing, right? Is that? Yeah, what- yeah. Antoine's still missing. He didn't come back. Finally, they're listening to him and everybody's worried that he's definitely dead. If it's not the mummy, it's something else, maybe. But yeah, everyone's upset. But Mr. Walsh is just like, back to work. I'll deal with it. Yeah, this is back in the days when a couple guys could die on a project and, you know, it'd be fine. That's the cost (laughs) of doing business. Yeah, but do we ever find out why they want to drain the swamp in the first place? Is it just because they need the land, you know, for building a strip mall or something like that. I don't think they ever explicitly say, but I would imagine that it's just to clear that land, develop it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now we're introduced to our representatives from the Scripps Museum. We meet Dr. James Halsey and his assistant, Dr. Ilzor Zantab. He brings kind of like his paperwork from the museum that they're, I guess, Egyptologists and there's been rumors of these mummies that are supposedly buried there and they're job is to come out and investigate and return any mummies that may be buried deep down in that swamp. Yeah, well, Halsey and Ilzor, like, they've been tracking this, you know, like, they they know the whole history of, they've seen all the other movies. And, <laughs> and they're down here because they know there's a mummy in there, you know? They have their credentials and all this and all that, and they're like, yeah, like, just so you know, like, we're allowed to be here too, and so we're going to be nosing around, and we won't try and get in your way if you don't get in ours. Yeah, I think they're looking at a piece of that swamp that is currently not part of the project. So really, there shouldn't be any overlap. But I think as a courtesy, they want to just make themselves known. But of course, the whole conversation goes south. Halsey clashes with Walsh, you know, so they don't get off to a very good start. No, yeah. And then this is where Betty's in the office too. And and Betty and Halsey have taken a liking to each other. And we find out that she is Walsh's niece. So like everything is nice and sort of tightly... I like how tight and connected all these characters are immediately. Yeah, because they're going to be spending a lot of time with each other over the course of this film. So like this is a really great scene to introduce everybody and get them all acquainted. I love this. At this point, Gooby comes rushing in, interrupts the meeting, and they found the body of the missing worker. I believe it was Antoine. As they all rush out to the swamp to investigate, Gooby runs into the bar to let the guys know. And that's where we find out that the body was found with a knife in its back. So it was definitely murder, not an accident. Couldn't have been the mummy, not his M.O. You know, he throttles you around the neck and leaves the mold there and maybe a piece of his rags. You know, it's his calling card. (laughs) Correct, but they don't know that. That's right. That's right. We know that. So I was like, wait a minute. We got a human killer too? Okay. Yep. That's cool. Yes, it's a fun twist on the formula. Now, when they all rush out to the swamp to investigate the site... They do find wrappings in Antoine's hand, Mm -hmm. uh, which could belong to a mummy. And then Dr. Halsey finds what appears to be like a man-shaped hole in the earth. Which is kind of silly. It's like when Warner Brothers cartoons run through a wall and leave their bodies outlined. Do you dig somebody, like, no, I've never 
exhumed any bodies or anybody, you know, when you see it, like they dig up the whole thing. That was kind of cute. The walls of that hole are very straight. Right. <laughs> so in that scene, also Zandab confirms that the wrappings are of a mummy's origin. And so it only confirms their suspicions that there was a mummy buried in that swamp. Yeah, the devil's on the loose. Devil's on the loose and he's dancing with the mummy. In the very next scene, which I love that they established this so quickly. Yes. We find out that Zandab is like a double agent. He meets up with Kozlek, who is one of the workers on the job site. And he's he sort of recruited him as his assistant, his little Igor, as you said before. And so I, I love that you said it through you a little bit. It got me as well. I love that they twisted this dynamic a little bit, made it just a little different from previous films. Yeah, I was completely caught off guard. I was like, where's Ilzor going? And then you hear like, master, master. And I'm like, who's that guy? Wait, is that one of the workers? I was like, don't tell me, you know? And then he's like, I'm actually a priest, you know? <laughs> and the guy's like, and I follow you. I'm like, oh, that was that's very cool. They didn't play that very close to the vest for much of the movie, which is fine. But it's nice, like you say, that it's out in the open, like, early and quickly because i was wondering who the priest was going to be and then maybe this guy was somehow connected but I, I didn't at all expect this to be coming well what's funny to me is that we were both sort of surprised by it despite the fact that he is the most obviously egyptian character in the movie yes yes but i felt like that was sort of supposed to throw us you know yeah, like obviously yeah. it couldn't be him he's the guy he's he, he's bringing back the fez but now he's on the good side you know that's what i thought they were going for. right it was like this time not that he was a high priest but that they had someone who knew what they were doing that was going to do this respectfully yeah yeah it's definitely like one of those things where i'm expecting it like a twist and the, and the answer's right there in front of me i i gotta be honest like you know i just it wasn't giving this movie enough credit you know yep. how can you like we're at the mummy's curse at this point <laughs> They have this old monastery, right? It's like a, like a dilapidated building. There's really just one floor of what used to be a monastery. And that's going to be their home base for the film. Kozlek, he was the one who unearthed Karas from the swamp and has brought him and his entire sarcophagus up to the monastery. And like when questioned about that, because that sarcophagus is huge and it's very heavy, it turns out he had hired some guys to help him carry that up to the monastery and then killed them. So we can assume that Antoine was one of those guys that he had helped him and was just sloppy about the disposal of the body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I pretty much assumed that he's the guy who killed Antoine. <laughs> yeah. It's chilling to realize that, like, he hired a couple other guys, too, and just has, you know, no qualms about it. It's like, yeah, you know, just that's part of the job. That's what we do. He's a motivated, enterprising young man. I really love the outside of this location. It's really creepy and cool with those steps and everything. And then I really like the inside as well. I was like, this is a really nice little secret hideout they got this time. I think much better than last time where we weren't sure what kind of mine they were chilling in. But yeah. This feels and looks way more like I want from a mummy movie. It's got all the iconography. It's got the cool sarcophaguses. It's got all the other stuff going on. Like, nice set here. Yeah, and it's a nice organic way to introduce some old school gothic horror into an otherwise mm. sort of mundane location. I don't want to say mundane in a negative way, but I mean, it's it's a bayou, right? So yeah. they have to kind of make it more gothic, and this is a good way to do it. Every time we come back to this monastery, it's going to look and feel like an old horror film. So at this point, we get 
the recap. This is the same story kind of we've heard in every single mummy movie up to this point. Zandab recounts the entire story of Karas. This is where we get reused footage from the mummy's hand, a little bit from the original mummy. And it's the same old thing, right? A forbidden romance. Karas tried to resurrect the Princess Ananka, which was forbidden. He was buried alive. He got his tongue cut out. He was buried with a ton of leaves. They also buried him in one location, killed everybody, and then buried him in another location. <laughs> and we also get the Tana leaf ceremony, right? The rules of that. Yes. Brewing three Tana leaves will keep him alive, but nine Tana leaves will activate him to do whatever it is you need him to do. And it's always at the cycle of the full moon. That's important. I love how the mummy is kind of like a werewolf in that way. Yeah, yeah, the moon being integrated. Also in this movie, the mummy will be the moon and then Ananka will be the sun. There's a nice kind of parallel that's going to come up later on with that. This is all very cool. I like how he's like, sit back and relax. I've got something to tell you. Like, I have to explain the full mission. And he goes all the way back through the montage and stuff. And then after montage, I think, doesn't he even mention how some Americans later brought him back to America? Like, he even goes further than the first movie and like starts recounting some of the sequels too oh yeah he catches us all the way up yeah 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 all that's very awesome very fun sequence and now their motivation really is not to like punish anybody right i think from this movie and the, and the movie previous the goal is really just to get karis and ananka back to egypt there's no kill list uh, yeah right yeah there's no revenge none of that really yeah just at the end of this scene we're introduced to michael the keeper of this old ruin when he sees, I think he calls them like pagan rituals or whatever. Yeah, he goes, what is this abomination? And he sees the mummy and the, the leaves and it's like, oh man, I can't be having this here. Nope. But before he can do anything about it, Karis throttles him. One of the most beautiful shots in the whole movie is that silhouette of him strangling Michael to death. At any time these movies will use a silhouette to show a murder, it's always way more effective than if they actually show it. So I love that the camera pans over to the wall and we see the, the silhouette of that you know what i'm kind of getting used to dan is hearing about off-screen kills you know yeah. like the last couple of movies we hear like the mummy killed again or like the werewolf just killed two guys like the other day and in this we have his little helper ragheb in this we mentioned like killing guys off screen and stuff there's just something more maybe dangerous about that now that i'm thinking about it not that i don't love seeing the mummy throttling people like in beautiful black and white stage shots and things like that i do i do but it's just some weird thing clicked with me this movie and I was like I hope we get to hear that the mummy killed like five guys we didn't get to see on his way to get somewhere like all these fools just stepped to him and he said have a nice day I believe this one does have the highest body count of the mummy movies oh cool even though there's not a bunch off screen I do think this is the one with the most death so far we've got two not all attributed to Karas obviously but overall deaths in a mummy movie this one definitely has the most Following this scene, we get our favorite scene in the whole movie. Ananka rises from the swamp in a beautiful sequence. It starts with her hand and then slowly they reveal her head and she climbs up out of the, the muck. Yeah, I was just so pleased with the patience of this sequence. And it makes sense now hearing that they shot this last. Yep. Probably wanted to get it right and do it as few times as possible so that she can get out of the makeup. And it's like, it looked like a blazing hot day. And if it wasn't, they did a good job making it seem that way. When she kind of like goes into the river, you could sort of see the actress relieved, like extremely uh -huh, relieved uh -huh. to like be in that water and wash all that stuff off. 
Yeah, we mentioned before, and I just have to say it again, incredible body language of her doing her mummy walk and just crawling out of that dirt and mud, just like a classic monster. Her body language is absolutely incredible. I'm watching it right now, and I'll tell you what, I know that that's just like chopped up cork, but it does not look like cork. It looks like stones, you know, clumped together dirt. Yeah, that's the power of a great cinematography that knows how to use black and white effectively. This sequence, I don't know if there's anything more we can say about it, but just a beautifully shot sequence. Obviously, that whole going into the water, rebirth kind of symbolism, like that's nice to have. And it's like a practical thing built in and it just serves the story nicely. She's washing off all that stuff. So the actress gets to get out of that. But character wise, it's development in that like she's born again. And then the next scene, we check back in with Cajun Joe. He's kind of walking through the swamp and he encounters this young woman woman who has really no idea how she got there, who she is. For all intents and purposes, she has amnesia. So he gives her his jacket and tries to get her to a safe place. Very interesting magic going on here. At the end of the last movie, the body that inhabited the soul of Ananka aged rapidly, right? As it sort of being carried into the bog and here it's like completely rejuvenated. So I like that. I mean, it's interesting too that it's a different actress portraying the same person in a weird way right but like all of it is cool again like the rebirth the change and and that is very clever this is a fun sequence too because they don't see rakid yep I don't know if it's because he's been in proximity of the mummy, but she starts saying Karis, Karis, Karis. It means nothing to Joe, but it means everything to Raggy. Right, yeah. She's got these repressed memories that are coming to the surface. She doesn't really know what they mean. We're going to learn that in the next couple scenes. But now Raghi understands who she is, right? This is Ananka. This is who he couldn't find before. And so now the mission becomes getting her and Karis together so that they can get them both back to Egypt. But as we'll learn, that is easier said than done. So Cajun Joe takes her back to Tanta Berth's inn. She has like her own bedroom outside the bar, kind of like one of those old inns where the owner lives there, right? As she's performing, she catches Cajun Joe in her room, is very upset about that, but then realizes what's going on. He's brought a woman he found to a safe spot for the time being. She's really in sort of that somnambulous state. Not quite a zombie like sort of in between and i think like that lost soul vibe coming from her i think she even says something like that that she might be between worlds right now yep yep haunting i'm glad that she's starting to speak more as well yes well she hasn't said anything just yet but she will before that we cut back to the monastery Zandab has resurrected Karas. He's like back to full power and is about to send him out into the world to retrieve his bride. Yeah, it gives him marching orders. Tells him anybody who stands in your way, kill them. They're not taking any chances. Off goes Karas to Tanta Berth's inn. And just as she is tucking our Ananka into bed, Karas bursts through the door and strangles Tanta Berth to death. Yeah, yeah. She sort of jumps in front of Ananka, like sacrifices herself or something. And I love the mummy radar also. I mean, he was told to go to the inn, I'm sure. But also, like, how does he know how to get to the inn? He's got to have some kind of mummy radar. And this is also going to be a theme, I guess, is Ananka's going to be able to sort of run away while the person protecting her is killed. And yep. she'll like sort of run into the forest away from the mummy and maybe pass out or, or meet 
meet some people to help her for the next few scenes or so. Yes. As far as she's concerned, she is just another damsel in distress in another mummy movie, not realizing that she is perhaps destined for greatness, depending on who you ask. But she passes out along the side of the road, and this is where Dr. Halsey and Betty Walsh find her. Okay, so this scene I have some issues with. They pick her up off the road, put her in the car, and they're going to take her to safety. They take her back to camp. But like the entire scene, Karis is like in the background. He gets painfully close to like everybody and somehow nobody ever sees him for this whole sequence. Yeah, I kind of loved it because this, I believe this is their attempt at comedy. It's very anxiety driven. Like it gives me anxiety, right? Like he's so close. He's going to get, oh no, they don't see him. Like he's right there, but they don't see him. Like they can't sense his presence okay like if a guy was just standing next to you you could you would sense a person standing next to you maybe that's a mummy power he's just a silent and like you can't hear him but i thought that was kind of charming i needed something like that because all of this like cajun stuff wasn't making me laugh i think like that was supposed to be there to be kind of like goofy or fun or like not too scary and to me that was just kind of like insensitive but this stuff i was like holy shit i can't believe they're doing a kind of like a slapstick thing here where like (laughs) he's just missing him and then he's going to grab him but the car drives away. I understand why it would be annoying, but I just kind of fell for it again. This movie just, I fell for it. I don't know if I'm saying that it's annoying, but I do think that it's impossible not to laugh at it. And I don't know if the intent was to be funny or not. And I think that's what's got me confused. Ah, I hear you. Because I feel both in this scene. You know what I'm saying? Like I feel suspense and anxious, but I'm also sort of laughing about, I can't believe they're doing this. You know, director Leslie Goodwins, as I mentioned, had a history in comedy. And so, you know, if it was intentionally comedic, then it would make sense considering his background. But the fact that the scene is confusing to me is a bad sign. I don't feel like I'm laughing with it. I feel like I'm laughing at it. And that strikes me in a, in a weird way. You know, I still can't get over why Son of Dracula had to drive a car and couldn't just fly as a bat. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. After Betty and Dr. Halsey drive off with Ananka, we check back in at Tanta Births and like the entire town is there. And the doctor comes in and they're all trying to figure out what is going on. The only thing they know for sure is that she's been killed by strangulation. Yeah, Joe is so upset. He is besides himself. And then they discover it. I think it's the only time in the movie we get it, the mummy mold. And we didn't need a mold expert to tell us that. The doctor just knew. He's like, I've been a doctor around these parts for 40 years. I've seen mummy mold. It's been 25 years, but... (laughs) Yeah, it's the late 90s. I know what mold is. Yeah, I looked it up on this new thing called the internet. (laughs) We get back to camp, Dr. Halsey's camp on the outskirts of the swamp. And this is where Ananka really starts to become a character, right? We get to sort of understand her confusion. She doesn't know who she is. She's got these strange memories. And so I think the general consensus is that she's generally unwell. And the best thing for her is to just kind of take it easy, hang out at camp, give her things to do to take her mind off of all of this uh, stress. And so Dr. Halsey gives her like busy work around camp. He's like, he has her help him with his archaeological work. Yeah, it took me a minute to realize that this is sort of their expedition camp or their archaeological dig site camp. Yep. I was like, are they just camping out in the woods? <laughs> you know, yeah. they know there's a town there, but... 
I love how they're like, yeah, we don't know anything about her. She's definitely got amnesia. Um, no signs of like magic. And the best thing we could do is keep her occupied. And he's like, oh, I know. She could be my lab assistant. Yeah. I was like, she's got no qualifications to do like <laughs> basically anything. I think they were kind of thinking more like, I don't know, get her a job at the bar or something, you know, like <laughs> have her be a waitress or something. I don't know. But he's like, yeah, she, she could look in my microscope and examine things for me. I found that just to be a little silly. Well, it turns out she knows way more than they think she does because the next time Dr. Halsey finds her, she's like staring down into a microscope at the bandages, right? She somehow knows by its thread count that it belonged to Karis. And she doesn't know who Karis is, but she just happens to know all this stuff and she can't explain why. I also like in this sequence that she is really into the sun. You know, she works yes. the sun. The sun seems to give her strength and power. And I like that, like I said earlier, it very much contrasts to Karis, who is like, you know, a child of the moon. He's like one of Conchu's children. He uh, operates at night and all that kind of stuff mostly. Yeah, and, and I love uh, horror films that are set in the daytime. Yes. So many yeah. of them are set at night. So it's it's nice to see something that's set mostly during the day, or at least, you know, in this case, the sun has a significant meaning to the story. So yeah, I love, love seeing daytime horror. And then Ilzor shows up at the site and she kind of like snaps out of it and goes into this weird little trance for a minute. Yeah, she starts calling out for Karis and confirms all of Ilzor's suspicions. So the following night, Ilzor sends Karis back out to retrieve Ananka. Yeah, he says something interesting here where he said, I found her, but I didn't have the power to draw her in or bring her here. Or, you know, like it right. seemed like he was trying some kind of hypnosis and that's why she felt his presence. But like, he's like, I'm not powerful enough. Like you have to go pick her up. Yes. And so he had to send Karis out by uh, the light of the moon to go retrieve his bride. And in this scene, let's see, how many deaths do we have? We have three, three bodies so far. We get our four. Fourth. So while Ananka is sleeping, she stirs, right, and wakes up for some unknown reason. This is as Karis is, is shambling into the camp. And over the course of this sequence, Dr. Cooper meets his untimely end. Yes, he does. Yeah. And it just seems to sort of be the pick of the draw. Like, what tent do I run into? I don't know if she was aware if that was Dr. Cooper's or if she was looking for Betty or who she was searching for. But she runs into Dr. Cooper's tent and, you know, he gets a moment to shine here. I like this actor. You know, you mentioned him before. I definitely recognize him from tons of stuff, like his voice and everything. Like, I've seen this guy in tons of things. I really like them. And again, you know, it's it's not his first scene, but it's like his big scene. And and it's also his death scene. And it's, again, like a really well shot, cool looking death scene for the mummy. 100%. As she is trying to make sense of these memories, these dreams of Karis, or they hear a noise outside. Dr. Cooper takes a look just in time for Karis to make his way into the tent and strangle Cooper to death. And then Ananka runs out of the tent while the doctor's getting strangled, saves herself, and off into the night. So now we've got another death to deal with. Dr. Halsey is, is having to explain it to Walsh. They found Dr. Cooper's body. They're convinced that Karis, this mummy, is out in the world wandering around. But Walsh is not convinced. He's a mummy denier until the very end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are button heads in this scene. This is where I was like, wow, the guy playing Walsh is bringing this character to life because 
they're not just writing him to do things that need to be done. Like they're staying true. He's being offensive. Like he's opposing, you know, like he doesn't believe like, and I love it. We always need to have a skeptic in these movies. Usually it's law enforcement, but the cops aren't really around this time, which makes it even a little more odd that there's no mob yet. You know, the mob shows up maybe at the end, but like we got this little team of like Walsh and Joe and Hazley and Betty and, and Ilzor's in there and they don't even know that he's an interlope. This guy is just so sneaky. It's so cool to see him like here in this scene, you know, knowing that he's the man behind the scenes. Yep. Yep. And I love Walsh trying to have Dr. Halsey's permit revoked. And when Betty refuses to send out the message, he's like, fine, I'll I'll do it myself. So that just sort of, I think, emboldens Betty a little more to Dr. Halsey. Definitely increases that that attraction, which will pay off later, later. Yeah. And shows that she, she stands up to him. Yes. So now we've got a search party. It's not quite a mob, but there are torches and a couple shotguns. <laughs> I love when they put the little torch on the boat. Yes. And they boat around with it. Like that was really ingenious, actually. I was like, that's really smart. I don't think I've ever seen a rowboat with like a torch holder before. That was like the first time. That must be so scary to see just coming down at the middle of the night, like coming down the river or whatever, if you're just hanging out by the river. (laughs) You see that? Must have think that's a ghost. I wonder if if that was a legitimate Cajun thing, you know, because there's so much water down there. There would be a lot of rowboats. I don't know. I would love to know more about that. But as Cajun Joe spies Ananka wandering through the woods, he um, gets out of his boat tries to hail her down however he encounters Karis who chokes him out like everybody else two shots close range with the shotgun too and nothing I think it's a body count of five up to this point unless I miss somebody I love how he raises the gun up to hit him with it he's just not fast enough he's not fast enough and then like the doctor tried to hit the mummy with a chair and he wasn't fast enough this mummy he doesn't have the best reflexes I don't know how people are slower than this mummy you know what it is it's it's the close quarters thing you know before you know it he's upon you and then like he outmaneuvers you somehow slow zombies are one thing I totally get that but this mummy it's one mummy well thank god they didn't tape a knife to his hand and wrap it up you know like (laughs) imagine if he had knives on his hands (laughs) Ananka rushes back to camp and she finds Betty she's the last person left at camp and she's looking for anybody to just save her from this situation she's having memories of Karis and these high priests and so she's hanging out with Betty for a while you know girl talk I'm a thousand year old there's a mummy after me (laughs) that kind of stuff Ragheb notices he steps out of his tent and notices Karis wandering through the woods and he hides and i'm not i'm not entirely sure why he hides i feel like Karis should know who this guy is what his role is but in any case rogheb kind of takes a passive role here hides behind a tree or something as Karis shambles into the tent so Karis basically destroys this tent but doesn't manage to kill anybody. He carries off Ananka successfully, and Betty, as she runs out, encounters Ragheb, and Ragheb sort of lures her back to the monastery. So now everybody is making their way back to this one spot. Yeah, I really like that, how the mummy, you know, once he has Ananka, he doesn't even notice Betty. Like, I was very glad that he wasn't just going to grab both of them, sort of like uh, Big Trouble in Little China. You know, there's two with green eyes, like two is better than one kind of thing and and put them one over each shoulder. And then when she goes out and talks to Ragheb and she's like, you know, I don't know you're a bad guy. And he's like, come with me. (laughs) You don't know I'm untrustworthy. We'll go find her together. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. 
that's when I remembered the third act twist where usually it's the high priest that yes. falls for the temptation, which is usually the beautiful woman. But I was like, he's going to get it this time. Now he fell for it. Yes. I love that twist that it's not Ananka. It is this innocent woman. He just finds her attractive, I guess, and decides that she's going to be his, to ultimately be his undoing. Yeah, because that was always the cult's way of thinking was purity, right? Purity, mind, body, like devotion to the cult and the devotion to our mummy gods and all that kind of thing. And it's like, this is forbidden stuff. And so he's like, ah, I have a chance. It could have been anyone almost, I feel. Yeah, but I do love that it's just somebody different in terms of the overall cast dynamic. Agreed. Yeah, not everyone's fallen for the same person. So with Karis and Ananka heading toward the monastery and Ragheb and Betty also heading towards the monastery, Dr. Halsey returns back to camp. He and Gooby find mummy wrappings when they discover the sort of collapsed tent. They also notice some tracks leading away from camp. And so Dr. Halsey, armed with his uh, scrap of mummy wrappings, follows the tracks all the way back to the monastery. Yeah, I like that, that the mummy tracks. That I don't think we've ever encountered those. If we have, I can't remember, but that's a nice little kind of tell is that the mummy leaves a certain type of footprint. Yeah, there have definitely been moments in previous mummy movies where I think in the in the original The Mummy, you see like the tracks leading out of the tent, but they're never used to this degree where like they track down the mummy that way. So I really liked that they did that here. So now as Karas is bringing Ananka back up, Ilzor is hard at work brewing up more of his Tana fluid. He's about to begin this uh, ceremony, which to be honest, I'm not totally clear about what is going to happen here. Presumably he will be completing her transformation. She will no longer be the human woman that she was. She will transition fully into Ananka, but it's a little bit confusing. Yeah. And to the best of my understanding, we never finished the ceremony, right? He, he has her in the sarcophagus and, and they start it and, she, and he starts feeding her some of the brew. He says Ananka will be lifted from her mortal state and will be sealed in the sarcophagus and sent back to Egypt. I'm not totally sure what that means, though. It sounds to me like her soul is going to be put to rest again where it belongs in the afterlife, and we're going to take the mummy body back where it belongs and and guard it, even though it's not her original body at this point. Right, right, right. It'll have to do. As that's going on, Ragheb and Betty arrive at the monastery, and she starts to realize that things are not what they seem. This guy has some ulterior motives. But just as he is about to act upon his attraction to her, he is interrupted by Ilzor, who is pissed. Dude, he is pissed. Holy shit. <laughs> is, this, is this the first totally pure high priest of Arkham that we've encountered? I think it is i can't recall everything for the original i think they always fall under the spell of ananka i think you're right i think they all end up taking each other out yes. yeah yeah rarity here that's makes him my favorite <laughs> yep. so he's here to do his job to the fullest but it's his assistant who you know is the one having his impure thoughts and i think he even says you betrayed my trust and you betrayed everything going back to like amin ra you know yep. he's like everything and he almost says it but he says you are now cursed but he doesn't say you now have the mummy's curse which would have been spectacular you know <laughs> just to have him say the title of the movie Ilzor doesn't have a chance to do anything about it because Raghab stabs him in the back. 
couldn't believe it. He's like, stay right here. I'm going to kill you. And then he like turns his back on the guy. And, you know, we know this guy's like a stabber. Yes. That was wild. Yes. And just as that happens, Dr. Halsey appears. And I actually really enjoy the physical altercation that happens here. Some of it's a little bit dodgy because like some of it's stage fighting and like some of it's a little slower than is realistic. But a lot of it is actually pretty physical and they sell it really well. Yeah. You know, Dan, for a movie that didn't have all that much stunt work in and I was like well here we go this is like a wrestling match like we even get two rounds and one of them's a knife fight I was very pleased this is an exciting climax did you say something about like Errol Flynn or Douglas Fairbanks earlier yeah yeah, it kind of invoked a little bit of that swashbuckle action here at the end that I really liked yeah at one point Halsey in that first half of the fight throws this like haymaker and it's like the coolest punch I've seen I think to date as long as we've been talking about these movies I'm like I've never seen someone throw a punch as convincing as that it was awesome because so much of it happens very quickly so it seems more aggressive. There's a couple moments where they just move a little too slow for me to really buy it, but ultimately, I really enjoy how kind of sloppy this fight can be. kind of plays out the way a real fight might. Yeah, yeah, and I like the close quarters, too. Yep. Like, they work that in to their advantage also. All around, very impressive. And just as the second round begins, Halsey is knocked unconscious, and before Ragheb can land the final blow with the torch, Karis grabs the torch from him and starts to pursue him. Ragheb locks himself into what looks like a prison cell, which is strange for a monastery. Well, it's probably like where the monks go to take a vow of silence or something. It's one of... Maybe. It's a cell, but I don't know if it was necessarily for prisoners or... This is where Lon Chaney gets a chance to be his usual physical self. He literally tears this room apart. The only thing that strikes me as odd is that like, he, he pries out some of the bars, has clear access to the lock on the door, and yet chooses to barrel down the door. Like He could reach around and just unlock it, but he chooses to just bash it down. I wonder, this mummy is so ancient, he just doesn't understand what a lock is and like <laughs> has no instinct to reach around and try and grab it off of the door. You know, he barely knows what a door is, I bet. Right. That's why you, like, in the last one, he walked right through the side of that barn. But I love that, like, this whole sequence, the entire building starts to come down around them and yeah. uh, he, he corners Ragheb in that little cell and like the entire ceiling just starts to cave in and, I, and we don't really get a solid resolution for them as far as we know they're both crushed under the rubble yeah it was really really well played how only part of the monastery crumbled you know just the part that the mummy was sort of trying to wreck his way out of and the part where the Ragheb was uh, trapped in with him so the two of them get crushed but our heroes managed to sort of get away. And there's that great line where they're like, only the part of the place collapsed. We're all right. I was like, very clever. But then they say something that has me very, very worried. They're like, you know, in time, we're just going to, we're going to dig that mummy up and send him back to Egypt. I'm like, no, (laughs) just pave over all of this. Just leave it alone already. Right. Have you learned nothing? We're stuck in a loop, Dan. (laughs) So as they make their way out of the monastery, they notice that Ananka has been returned to her mummified form. Then that's when it clicks in their heads, I guess, why she knew so much about Karas, Egypt and everything. Yeah, that was kind of fun. At least they, you know, wrapped that up where they're like, oh, so that's who she really was. Like, oh, I wondered who the amnesia girl turned out to be. It turned out to be, you know, a, a Egyptian princess trapped in another body. 
awesome. And that's pretty much the end of the movie. It does end with them talking about digging the mummy up and sending him back to Egypt. And then uh, Dr. Halsey and Betty walk down the long flight of stairs, arm in arm. Again, they're like the lovers of this movie, but like the movie doesn't really care enough about that particular romantic story to spend much time on it. So it's just sort of shoehorned in at the end. And then we get the end title card. And that is it. And that's it. And, you know, it's kind of nice that they didn't try and develop some kind of love triangle between, you know, the guy and the two women and and all that kind of thing. And that their relationship mostly develops off screen. I wish if that was the case, that they hadn't hinted at a clear romantic relationship at the end. Like they could have just been like friends who had gone through an experience together and they're just walking down the stairs. No, it it seems like they're going to get married. Yeah, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Which, okay, All right. Good luck. So I think that's it. I mean, that's as good a place as any to wrap up. Is there anything else you want to say about The Mummy's Curse before we get out of here? You know, in conclusion, I like this one. Like, I like this one way more than I was expecting. I like the way it does what it does. We, we say that so often, I feel, about mummy movies, right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for what it's doing, I feel like it does it well. Yes, I wish it was doing something different. I always do. You know what I'm saying? But 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 they're not gonna. And I'm okay <laughs> with that. Because yeah. I like the mummy lore. I like seeing how they're going to maybe throw new things in there. I love that this takes place technically in, like, the mid-90s. That is just so fun to think about while you're watching this. It's like the Rocky franchise. Like, the timeline is just warped beyond yeah. comprehension. Yeah. It's not really that good a movie, okay? But I really like this one, you know, especially since I was coming in with no expectations. I didn't think they were going to dredge up the mummy from the swamp. That really gave me a kick. So it started fun like that. And then as soon as Miss Mummy showed up, I was game for whatever. I was like, that's all I really wanted out of this movie. And that's what I got. And so the rest of it was just kind of icing. So yeah, I had a fun time, Dan. I would like to just take the Chorus movies and rank them and see see how I would rate them. Because like over the course of four of them, of course, with other movies sandwiched in between, I don't have a really great sense of which one I like more than the others, aside from like, you know, looking at my letterboxed rankings. Yeah. But just because I think one movie might be better than another doesn't necessarily mean I, I have as much fun with it. I don't know. But the idea of binging all of the Chorus movies in like an afternoon sounds exhausting. So I'm probably not going to do that. But yeah, I mean, if you if you had asked me at the beginning of this show when we started this back in 2020, how I felt about The Mummy, I don't really think that I would have had much to say. I didn't really think about The Mummy. I wasn't a huge fan of The Mummy franchise, but I can't deny the fact that every time we talk about one, we end up having a good time. So, uh, and to echo what you said, these aren't necessarily good movies, but they scratch an itch that like nothing else really could. So there's something to be said for that. I admire that they stick to that formula and find creative ways to differentiate all of them. If there's one good thing I can say about these movies, it's that they're consistent. I remember we've, we've had conversations in the past, not on the show, like but just you and I we've talked about slasher movies you know like 80s slasher movies and of the of the big franchises you and I are in agreement that we both really like Friday the 13th because of its consistency yes you know like you kind of always know what you're going to get from a Jason Voorhees movie whereas Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street can vary much more wildly right the gulf between a really good Nightmare on Elm Street and a really bad Nightmare on Elm Street is far greater than anything in the Friday the 13th franchise and that's kind of how I feel about the mummy movies like anytime I want just something familiar something I know I can put on any one of these and have fun yeah that's a that's a good call as we're watching all of these and we're switching back and forth between monsters and this and that and everyone's trying to do all kinds of things 
things inside of their own series. It's nice to know that the mummy will be reliable and plays it safe and he's always going to be what you expect from it. Like it's kind of comforting, right? About these mummy movies is that, oh, we're going off the map with this Dracula film or House of Frankenstein is like really, you know, throwing punches and going wild. But like mummy, it's always just going to be like a baseline sort of like back to basics. And and I, I appreciate that about it, you know? And so that right now is after watching all of them, sort of how I feel about them. Definitely. Well, I think that that's a good place to stop. We'll wrap it up here, but don't worry. We'll be back on Friday, September 30th for another Monster Rally with House of Dracula. I think with that one, we will officially conclude the storylines for the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, and the Wolfman. Wow. Yeah. After that, we get into, I think, She-Wolf of London, which has no connection to anything else before it. Then we're into the Abbott and Costello cycle. So we're coming to the end. I think we have 10 episodes left. Wow. Oh, no. Well, and we got to have a meeting. We got to figure out where we're taking this show after that. This is the first of our last 10 episodes. Okay. That's how it works out. So um, we have nine more episodes. So we've got those. We've got all three of the Creature from the Black Lagoon movies, but we're, we're coming to the end. You know, we're not there yet, and I'm very much looking forward to all the stuff that we have to come. I wonder if they're going to hire Abbott and Costello to dig out the mummy and bring him back to Egypt. But yeah, I look forward to those movies, the Creature movies. Yeah, we still got a lot of fun and a lot of stuff to watch. Yeah, this is when I really love that we release monthly. You know, like we have nine more episodes, but that's most of a year, you know, like it's more than half of a year. So it's still quite a ways. We still got plenty of monsters to talk about. So Friday, September 30th, look out for our House of Dracula episode. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MonsterMadePod, on Instagram and Facebook at The Monsters That Made Us. And you can email us at TheMonstersThatMadeUs at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Cologne. Mike, where can listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, and you can find all the other shows I'm on over at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can do so at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us. You can also support the show by giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And we can't forget about our t-shirts on TeePublic. You can find the link for that in our aforementioned Twitter and Instagram bios. For all other things Cage Club related, just head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And before we go, we do have one thing that I wanted to add. We got some mail, Mike. We got mail. So we got an email from our good friend, Brian Rodriguez. If you're not familiar with the High School Slumber Party podcast, Mike and I have been on that show multiple times, but Brian is our friend. He he loves high school movies. And so he's got what? He's got over like 200 episodes at this point, doesn't he? Something like that. I think he hit 300 this year. So if you love like movies about high school, absolutely check out High School Slumber Party. It's on the Cage Club Network alongside us. But Brian sent us an email. He says, hi there. First time, long time, big fan of you boys. Keep up the good work. Quick question. Obviously, you guys love the OG Universal Monsters, but who are your top five non-Universal Monsters? I want a top five from you both. Thanks. So we can answer that question on our next episode. You know, I don't want to put you on the spot right now, Mike, but let's think about that. And in our next episode, we will give our top five non-universal monsters. Awesome. I love that question. Thank you so much, Brian, for the email. Very fun. So again, get everything monster related, cage club related at cageclub.me. Again, that's cageclub.me. Stay spooky, everybody. Mm -hmm.